Uh, morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Are we enjoying this Sunday? Um, I'm very, very excited to be here and to be able to, to share some things with you today. We're going to be talking about culture, so we're delving into the wonderful world of anthropology. Um, but trust me, I will try to make it as exciting as anthropology gets. <laughs> um, so yeah, I should give you a little bit of a background about myself. Uh, so I was born in Israel. Uh, my parents were there for a couple of years. They were working on the, the kibbutz, the community farms there. And I was an unexpected but apparently welcome addition to their trip. <laughs> um, and they, they wanted me to grow up around uh, the extended family back in England. So we moved back when I was six months old. Old, and we were there until I was 11. Uh, we moved to France. Uh, my dad's a software engineer, so we were just moving where the projects were, so on and so forth. Uh, so we moved to France, had my 12th birthday there, lived there for almost six years, and then we moved to the Netherlands, um, and we were there for almost 10 years. Um, and after I finished high school in the Netherlands, I had the opportunity to study with the youth of the mission. Um, and I actually ended up studying anthropology with a focus on um, urban missions. And the reason why they, they offered this school is because Amsterdam relatively small urban uh, center. I mean, there was less than a million people in Amsterdam, no matter how important it is as a European capital. And within that relatively small population, there were 240 registered nationalities and people groups. So you can imagine the, the need to be able to minister to those groups effectively uh, while being respectful of the culture, the cultural differences, and the cultural clashes. Um, the coursework was in English, That's the, that was the language of the base in Amsterdam, um, but my coursework was also translated into Spanish, not Dutch, because 80% of the students were from Venezuela. They became my second family from my time there, and still in contact with pretty much all of them 20 years on, so phenomenal. Um, the Netherlands is also where I met my absolutely amazing better half, my wife. Uh, she, uh, she is born, bred, and raised uh, Dutch. Um, absolutely, thank you, yes. <laughs> And then after we were married, we ended up moving to Canada. And so that is, we just celebrated our 17 wedding anniversary, but also our 17 years uh, in Canada. So, yes, it's, uh, so if you've done the math, yes, 40 plus years would be correct. So, <laughs> but in my time uh, being immersed in other, uh, other countries, in other cultures, and in studying cultures, um, it has been absolute, absolutely sort of fundamentally important with how I interact with other people and also with how I interact with, my, with God and my understanding of God and my relationship with him. Um, why is it so important to talk about culture? You know, and how does culture affect our understanding to those that we are going to serve and minister to? And really, how does it affect our understanding of who God is and how um, he acts in the world? So today I'm going to answer some of those questions. Um, you know, Today, it is relatively easy to be exposed to new cultures, uh, new ways of thinking, um, new languages, uh, new ways of thought. And as God's physical representation on the earth, as his hands and feet, as a physical representation of his values and his kingdom culture, it's very important for us to be able to minister to those in a way that is not going to be offensive to them. And, uh, you know, it's easy to to shut down a relationship due to cultural misunderstanding. So much easier to do so than we could possibly imagine. I mean, conflicts have started, you know, businesses have been ruined, literally. Um, ministries have shuttered before they've even had the chance to start because of cultural misunderstanding. But not only does it help us avoid certain cultural pitfalls, there are large parallels in understanding culture with trying to thrive and function effectively in kingdom culture. Now, I should start by saying that culture is a 
huge multi-layer topic. And as with any study of human nature, <laughs> there are many schools of thoughts. Um, you know, so I am going to try and make some broad statements, but keep in mind that there always is going to be exception to those rules. So let's define what culture is. Now, simply put, it is the way of life of a group of people. Large scale, of course, you're looking at countries, but smaller scales exist as well. Anywhere there is a divide between different people groups, there's going to be cultural differences. For example, technological advances will create generational divides where there are uh, cultural uh, implications on both sides of that divide. Uh, culture uh, is defined as everything that makes up a particular people group. It covers everything, education, values, um, it covers morals, it covers belief systems, it covers how family is structured, it covers how the government or any other ruling body comes into play. It defines what that particular group sees as success, as failure, what is seen as important, as sacred. Pretty much culture uh, for, uh, for a particular group is defined as um, the behavior or decisions made with a particular framework, either consciously or, most importantly, subconsciously. Now, one way of, of, of thought, uh, put it this way, uh, there is no right way to be human. What we call the right way of being human, or our way, um, is very different to what another society or culture calls our way as well. Um, what I would consider normal is going to be considered abnormal to another person or to another group. Now, the decisions that we make will be informed by the culture that we live in, and we will be largely unaware just how much our cultural prejudices, our biases, the cultural pressures um, push us in a particular direction. We won't know any different because we've never experienced any different. We will not have any other point of reference to tell us otherwise. Now, I make this statement, of course, uh, to make a point, but as followers of Christ, we do know that God has designed life to be lived a particular way. And a call to cultural sensitivity so that we may love others effectively is not a call to, to compromise the values that God has put before us. Um, the Apostle Paul says this uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 to 23. And he says, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ." When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. But, and this is a big but, one of the absolute key lessons I've learned in being immersed in various cultures is this. I have to be willing to be wrong. I have to understand that I am going to have biases and preconceived ideas of what is acceptable based on external factors that I am completely not aware of. And it's not just in my perception and valuation of an individual or another people group. This happens within church because church culture is subject to the same pressures and pushes and pulls as any other culture. To put it one way, you know, denominations will have their way, their right way. But a denomination's right way isn't going to line up with another denomination's right way. This isn't you know, a criticism, it's just this is natural. This is just 
how human beings work. But keep in mind that God's heart is always restoration, is always reconciliation. I mean, conflict and offense arise when we are exposed to just how different another culture can be because you know, just how an introvert finds it inconceivable that an extrovert actually gets energized by being around other people. There, are, there is no direct way to translate the values of one culture into the values of another culture. So, let's see. So, for example, I'm going to give you an example. So, think of the color red. Okay. Now, think of someone who has never seen or cannot see the color red. Now, try and explain the color red to someone who cannot see the color red. That's an extreme example of what it's like to try and translate one culture into the values of another culture. You know, and frustration comes when we try to understand that culture in the framework and structure of our own. Let's start with languages. Probably the easiest thing. Now, anybody here ever used Google Translate to try and translate a document online? Yes. Um, you will see that there is not a one-to-one -one or word-to-word -word translation available between languages because languages are structured so differently. And it's not just the fact that they're structured differently. Languages are formed over time uh, through, uh, through pressures, um, through the, the, the needs of the time, even through geographical location. And the needs of that geographical location will color the language. Um, in anthropology, it's well known that, and it's not an urban myth, I looked it up and did some study, the Inuit tribes have between 50 to 100 different words for snow and their interaction with snow because it is such a huge part of their day-to-day -day life. Now, here in Canada, you know, close to the border, we may have colorful words that we use for snow um, <laughs> if we have to dig the car out you know, three days in a row, but we don't have individual words where, say, the closest translation would be deep soft snow, or fine snow, or snow on the ground. We just have a different need in our language. Think of it uh, also when we look at the Bible. We have, what, many different translations in English of the Bible, because of course we're translating from the original languages of uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And there is no way to directly translate from those languages into English. There is weight and emotion attached to these words, to the phrases, to the idioms, and context. That, does not, that it just does not translate. For example, the word love. We have the word love. And we use that as a translation in the Bible to cover many different words in Greek. For example, we have philia, which is you know, the brotherly bond. We have eros, which is romantic love. And of course, we have agape, the unconditional God love. But we use, in English, love to cover all of those and all of its meanings. So in the English translations, what they try to do is they try to pull out the full meaning and emotion behind these words and idioms and phrases that, so that we can have a greater understanding of what the original context and content was. It's difficult because, once again, no direct translation. And English is just, or languages as a whole, sorry, are an extension of just the culture. So if you think of their no direct translation, in cultures themselves, the whole of the culture, you've got symbols, values, shapes that cannot be translated directly from one to the other. Let's use some broad examples. Let's look at hot climate culture and cold climate culture, probably the broadest spectrum that we can look at. So hot climates, you're looking at, of course, anything close to the equator, um, Africa, for example, uh, Latin America, and cold climate would be, of course, North America, uh, large parts of Europe. And just the difference in climate can affect how the cultures express themselves and their values to the point where it's almost opposite. And I have a couple of key differences here. So 
hot culture climates are relationship-oriented. Okay, so they tend to build their lives around people and relationships, while people from cold cultures uh, tend to plan in terms of um, tasks and timelines. Um, when you look at group identity versus uh, individualism, hot cultures raise their children to be part of a larger group. I mean, it's not uncommon for people within these, uh, these climate cultures to be uh, multi-generational within the same household. You've got kids and grandkids and grandparents all living, and that is normal because family is such an important value. Their terms of success is wrapped up in the family success. Whereas, of course, in uh, cold climate cultures, it is very much more about the individual. We raise our children to function within an individualistic society. What's one of the first questions you ask someone when you meet them? What do you do for a living? Because, once again, it reflects a cultural value. We don't even think about it because we just do not know any different. The biggest one is privacy and you know, you know, space around ourselves. So in, in Africa, for example, you know, space around yourself does not exist. In fact, in Ethiopia, if, some, if you're you know, eating at a, at a table and the host goes to feed you with their hands, they want to feed you themselves with their hand because it is a sign of trust. But I also know so many introverts who'd be running the other way. <laughs> because for them and their structures and their values, it's important. They need their, their, you know, their personal space and their time to process. So, you know, we laugh at these differences, but, you know, every difference is a reflection of a value and something that is important in their culture, something that has been there possibly for generations, hundreds and hundreds of years. So what happens when we're wrenched from our comfort zone, when, you know, the norm that we are accustomed to, um, you know, is uh, attacked by interaction with uh, another culture, when we're staying in another culture? You know, these norms, the status quo that we're used to, when it's stripped away, what happens? And remember that our cultural structure and biases are there without readily acknowledging or being aware of their existence. And it can be a very challenging thing, almost to the point of crisis, when the comfort of what we've always known is no longer, you know, the status quo. How does this apply with our walk with God? Being culturally sensitive, of course, allows us to approach, serve, and love others more effectively. How do we get past um, these, you know, these feelings of anxiety, these feelings of discomfort, even anger, the anger of not being understood or not being able to comprehend? We may completely misunderstand even the needs of others. We may come from a place where we want to serve others, but we may misunderstand what their need is because we're looking at the need from our cultural perspective. So an understanding of culture really does, and it doesn't have to be when you're going to another country. It can be cultural differences even within the people group or people groups that you are serving within Canada. Or the US, of course, on the other side of the border, which one day hopefully we'll be back together again, thankfully. <laughs> there's, um, there's a story. Uh, that, uh, that was shared with YWAM, and it stayed with me, um, partly because some of the details, it's a little difficult to keep PG, which I will, I promise. No need to shut me off. Um, but it really helped illustrate um, what it means to effectively serve within another culture and the pitfalls. So in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, there are multiple tribes that up until the 1900s, the early 1900s, I believe, were completely untouched. They, were, they had no contact with the outside world. Now, during the 1900s, various missionary groups from denominations made it their life's work to approach uh, these tribes and to share the love of God with them and to share the message of Jesus with them. Over time, the missionaries were accepted into these tribes and you started to see certain tribes actually responding to the truth of the gospel. Fantastic. But, always a but, there was a bit 
of a rocky start. Now, the males of certain of those highland tribes, um, the only piece of clothing, and I mean only piece of clothing, uh, what it is what's known as a kateka. And it's a dried gourd that is basically used as underwear. Once again, not going into any details. Once again, keep in mind this is their only item of clothing. And the word used to describe the missionary's response to this item of clothing was scandalized. The kateka gourd had cultural significance, however. There were uh, individual markings, uh, colorings, so on and so forth. So it was not just important significantly as an item of clothing, but it also helped as an identifying marker. So it was not something that they were willing to give up easily. But in no way did the tribespeople ever view the kateka as inappropriate. They just did not have that reference. It was just normal for them. Now, jump a little while later, and we see that the, uh, we see the tribes actually responding, making decisions for Christ, absolutely fantastic. But what happened was, we have structures built to hold Sunday services in. So just small, simple buildings on Sundays, of course. And when the tribes people went to these buildings to have a church service, the missionaries suggested that be a good idea for them to dress up in suits and ties. So you can imagine the sweltering heat of Papua New Guinea. And of course, they go about their, their, their normal, you know, they're wearing what they normally wear throughout the week, but on Sundays, they are dressed in their Sunday best. And it wasn't just the clothing, though. Um, if I remember correctly, even the hymns that they sung or learned to sing were in English or the language of the missionary group that was there to serve them. There were two main repercussions for what happened. So in adopting the customs and the dress of the missionaries for service, the tribes people had an inevitable barrier in growing in their relationship with God. They were using language and symbols completely foreign to the way of thinking. And in doing so, they viewed the God that they were learning to serve as the missionary's God, not their God, not their loving father who had created them for purpose. And imposing... Excuse me, this is the second thing. And there's no, uh, you know, there was no um, malice behind the missionaries' intentions. So imposing sort of the, the songs and the rituals and the dress onto the tribes' people, the tribes' people could not express themselves in a way that was truth for them. They were using another language, other symbols. And think of it this way. Think of all the songs that we would have been robbed for. Think of the unique expressions of worship, the unique expressions of love. As a tribe's people eventually did learn to write their own worship songs in their own language, using their own instruments, their own dance. And as the tribe's people started to experience the freedom to express their relationship with God using their own values, it was a game changer. Because as the tribe was transformed literally from the inside out, the tribes in themselves were the ones who started to spread the message to other tribes. And intertribal violence vanished. The entire culture was changed from the inside out, but it took the missionaries letting go and letting the tribes people really learn to worship in spirit and truth. And as a result, heaven will have new languages worshiping God when we're all together. Oh, amen to that. <laughs> All cultures, and I mean all cultures, need redemption and need transformation. There are indeed some cultures that are going to be harder to reach for whatever spiritual reason, but there is not one country nor one people group that doesn't need the transformational touch of restoration with the Heavenly Father. And no nation on earth is so far gone that can't be transformed. 
We have the answer the world so desperately needs. We have the answer, and that is Jesus. It's not our way of doing things. It is not our way of worship. It's not our church structure. True, lasting transformation comes from the inside out. It cannot be imposed. It cannot be argued. It has to come from a renewed heart, mind, and spirit. Now, oh, I love this story. <laughs> Let's dive in and look at some biblical examples of how Jesus showed the Father's desire for reconciliation. So Jesus was countercultural in the absolute best sense. He challenged the, uh, the prejudices within Jewish culture and in doing so redeemed people groups and individuals who were seen as the absolute lowest of the low within the culture. In the book of Luke, when Jesus is tested by a teacher of the law about who exactly is his neighbor, Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I, I'll read it to you. So it's in, chapter, it's in Luke, sorry, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and I'm reading from the NLT translation. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now this is a well-known story, but it takes on even more weight when you understand that culturally the Jews and Samaritans despised each other. The Samaritans were actually half Jew, half Gentile. And uh, they came about after the Assyrian captivity uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC. Certain people from the nation of Israel actually stayed behind after the captivity, and these people intermarried with the Assyrians uh, producing the nation of, of the Samaritans. Now, the Jewish people absolutely detested the mixing of the cultures and the worship of their northern cousins. Sorry. And they considered the Samaritans as Mongols and actually called them a herd, not a nation. Now, 700 years up until where Jesus is telling the story, 700 years was full of cultural clashes. For example, when um, the Israelites were allowed to finally rebuild the temple, the Samaritans wanted to help. And the Samaritans weren't allowed to. The Jewish people said, no, we don't want your help. So what the Samaritans did was they went to the, uh, the leaders of the time, the, the Persians, and, and actually petitioned against the building of the temple. So, of course, the Jewish people didn't like that. And it escalated and it escalated, and it culminated in 113 BC when the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, their holy site, was destroyed. So by the time Jesus tells this story, literally you've got 700 years of growing cultural distrust and hatred this was something deeply, deeply ingrained in the way of thinking of people of Israel. It was a prejudice, a cultural bias. There was so much animosity between the two groups that the worst possible insult you could make in Jesus' time uh, for the Jewish people was to call someone a Samaritan. 
And here we have Jesus using a Samaritan as an example of who a merciful, caring, selfless neighbor was. And I can only imagine it might have been an awkward silence before the expert of the law begrudgingly gave his answer. And at the end, we have Jesus saying, go and do likewise. Reconciliation. And of course, this wasn't the only time that Jesus used Samaritan, you know, uh, a Samaritan in his ministry. The, um, you know, I will paraphrase it, but if ever you want to look it up, of course, in John chapter 4, we have the story of Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman um, at the well. And here you have the Samaritan woman who was at the well at noon because she was living a life that many people considered to be sinful. She was living with a man who wasn't her husband, had had multiple husbands before. And so Jesus being at the well and actually approaching her, talking to her, here she was, a Samaritan woman living a lifestyle that many people have disagreed with, to put it lightly, and Jesus, a Jew, is talking to her. It was inconceivable. But in their interaction, Jesus, I'm going to read the very end of it. So, of course, their interaction is, why are you here? Why are you giving me water? And he's just, he starts with just kind of breaking down that little bit of a divide. He says to her, I know how you're living, but there's no judgment. There is no condemnation. It's just a fact. And so this breaks down the, the walls that the, the woman has in her conversation with him. And he says this to her at the end. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, so the mountain where the temple they'd had, that had been destroyed, but you Jews, uh, sorry, uh, nor in Jerusalem, but you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We should worship what we do know. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes. He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So, a Samaritan woman living a lifestyle, a particular lifestyle, is the first person that Jesus himself personally introduces himself as the Messiah to. And from that interaction, that moment of reconciliation, her entire village comes to know God. Reconciliation. <laughs> the gospel is the good news of restoration. The restoration of a right relationship with God through Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. And God's heart is that all his children find their way home. What we call the Great Commission, when Jesus commanded his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations, that was a call to see restoration and kingdom transformation of all people groups, all backgrounds, all ethnicities, everyone, because God is the heavenly father of everyone. But what does that kingdom transformation look like? What does kingdom culture mean, even for those of us who've walked with him for decades even? Kingdom culture is defined entirely by God's values. Where the last is first, the first is last, it rests on the pillars of love, hope, and faith. It is a culture of, abund of abundance, sorry, not lack. Wholeness of spirit, mind, and body. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Where power, ultimate power and authority are tempered by humility. It is a culture of peace and joy that surpass all understanding that are not dependent on circumstance. It is a culture of provision. It is a culture of restoration. It is a culture of unity. They will know that we are his by our love that we have. 
for each other. It is a culture that starts and ends with who God is. But at its core, it is an entirely foreign culture that defies natural logic, where the supernatural is the natural, where the spiritual realm is undeniable, and what happens as a physical is only part of the bigger picture. It's not a culture that can be defined in terms that we can readily understand in human values, just as we cannot understand the fullness of how absolutely amazing and beyond compare our God is. And God makes this point very clearly in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, uh, once again in the New Living Translation, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Because the very nature of kingdom culture is foreign to our own, it is possible to experience culture shock. And if we approach our relationship with God, our understanding of who he is through our cultural lenses, we end up with a very incomplete picture and also sometimes a very warped picture. It is possible to dismiss the things of God because they do not line up with what uh, we believe or what we understand him to be and who, you know, how Jesus um, behaved and what he said. You know, we see those things through a cultural bias and it affects how we live out our Christian life. If an upbringing, sorry, if our upbringing dismisses an expression of God as unbiblical, it's usually because there was a cultural misunderstanding, but that is something they, we grow up with as a value. And anything outside of that value is a no-no. Now, it used to be that I would react negatively to the words uh, prosperity or healing because my cultural belief biases, you know, I grew up in a relatively, um, you know, typically, how do I put it, uh, English faith system. Um, we're not necessarily known for our exuberance during church services. <laughs> um, but my cult, so those biases prevented me, you know, I ran, I ran the other way whenever those words would come up because I didn't view them as biblical. And, uh, you know, but there was always a nagging feeling, always a nagging feeling that, that my beliefs didn't quite line up with what I was reading in the Bible, what Jesus actually said. And there were Christian speakers and authors that I dismissed outright because of their reputation as, you know, false teachers or false prophets. But in doing so, I missed out on truly insightful and genuine teachings for people who displayed a genuine and earnest and honest love and, and, and search after God's own heart. We will read the Bible with our cultural lenses on. You know, entire doctrines have been based on incomplete understanding of the cultural context of what is said in his word. We will unknowingly allow our culture to form our opinion and expectation of what church looks like, how ministry functions, and how God will behave, which of course is backwards. God should be the lens that we view our lives with, not the other way around. And that sounds easy, but at the same time, it's not. So how do we navigate this clashing of cultures? How do we move past our prejudices so that we may thrive in kingdom culture? So there's a concept in anthropology known as third culture kids. And it's a child, um, you know, it could be a child raised within one culture whose parents are of a different culture. Um, it could be like myself, where I've been raised in multiple cultures for a significant amount of time. Um, it could even just be, you know, a uh, parent is one culture, the parent is another culture, and that child is raised within that. Now, third culture kids are invaluable in anthropology because they are able to take the language of one culture and the values of one culture and translate it in a way that the other culture can understand because they are immersed in both and can translate between the two. They will be able to explain cultural nuances in a way that a non-native will be able to understand. They are 
bridges that span the gap of misunderstanding. Jesus was and is a bridge. Of course, he bridged the incomprehensible divide between us and our Father God through his death and resurrection. And we're now able to stand boldly as children of God, completely restored, completely redeemed. But he also acted as a, as a bridge between the kingdom and our world because he is the physical representation of the invisible God. His life gave us tangible, visible examples of kingdom culture empowered by the Holy Spirit transforming the lives around him. His words, his actions, his miracles all served as an example of life completely expressed in kingdom values. Fully God, fully man, translating the language of heaven into values and symbols that we can understand. His life served as the blueprint for all those who call themselves children of God. His life spoke louder than words ever could. This is kingdom come. Not in a way that any of his followers were expecting, however, because, of course, they were expecting him to come and kick the Romans out to rescue them from their oppressors. They were expecting a physical kingdom, you know, for there to be overthrowing. And, but no, Jesus came and showed and modeled that the kingdom is about rescue and restoration of a spiritually dead world to redeem them back into the place where God has always, always intended us to be. Transformed from the inside out when our inner spiritual reality invades the world around us. When Jesus ascended into heaven, his, uh, you know, after his resurrection, he promised us a helper. He promised us the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God to come and reside in us to help and guide us and to teach us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 16 but it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain, explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. For those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is our bridge. Much like the third culture kids can express the values and symbols of one culture uh, into the symbols of another culture, the Holy Spirit expresses to us inside out, to us the things of God that makes sense. That is revelation. Whenever you've read the same Bible passage multiple times and all of a sudden, it clicks. Or you listen to a teaching uh, you know, or a preacher and all of a sudden like, there's an explosion of understanding. That is Holy Spirit revelation. We can't even always put it into words. Have you ever tried that? Like, I've read this a thousand times. I'm trying to explain. Why does this mean so much to me? And people look at you like, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Because it's from the inside out. God is spirit and to understand the things of God, we need his spirit. It was never meant to be about intellectually understanding what we read in the Bible. 
But it takes time, and it takes a continual internal choice to grow in the kingdom. It takes a continual, yes, I am all in. We are already fully naturalized citizens. We've been given everything we could possibly need. We are already God's children. We are already seated in heavenly places. But just as it's possible to be a fully card-carrying natural citizen of the country that you move into, but still stay on the outskirts, still stay within your, your culturally comfortable bubble, so too is it possible to be completely restored, completely redeemed, completely, totally, um, you know, our identity as children of God and still be on the outskirts of the kingdom, staying in a comfortable bubble. So, it takes us to admit that possibly we might be wrong, that there might be more to this, because there is, there always is. I mean, Joseph put it a great way, there is always more in God, always more, always more, always more. So as we drop our barriers and we allow us the Holy Spirit to teach us the ways of God, as the Holy Spirit shows us more and more of Jesus, as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time in the Bible, as we spend time practicing the things of God, we will see transformation because it is inevitable. When we are fully immersed in the kingdom, its culture becomes more and more our normal. Our biases, to put it one way, will be our kingdom culture biases. The supernatural will be our natural. Our faith will move mountains because we do not know any differently. We should be surprised by how God provides. Oh, look, a fish with a coin in its mouth. That's exciting. That's awesome. That's new. I haven't seen that one yet. How else, God, are you going to provide for my needs? Oh, a a check on the floor. Who knows? God has an infinite number of ways of making sure that we get what we need. So we shouldn't be surprised, or we should be surprised by how he gives, but we shouldn't be surprised that he does. And once again, it's because we just don't know any differently, because we know him. Not an idea of him, we know him. So let me finish by sharing one of the most uh, impactful stories um, that was shared with us a couple of times actually during LCSM, which is the Light City School of Ministry. So um, actually, we just, I just finished my third year actually with, uh, with my wife, Jaden. Life-changing. <laughs> highly, highly recommend praying about it because of course, if God says yes, do it, he will make sure. I mean, we're two young parents. We have kids. Uh, you know, we needed work. We needed money. We needed food. But we did three years. God always made sure in the most spectacular fashion that we always had enough to cover the responsibilities that we had, and then some, in some phenomenal ways. There are so many testimonies, which I don't have time for, but still. (laughs) When he says yes, it will always be a yes. But this story, this story really helps illustrate um, what what I've been sharing. So Sean Bowles is a very well-known prophetic speaker. And this teaching was actually uh, from before he, uh, you know, this was his, during his time with Bethel. So this was definitely a few years back, I think like 15 years. And he was sharing a story about this young woman um, that he knew from uh, the ministry. And uh, so this young woman, um, very completely matter-of-factly, would just go about her day and do absolutely crazy, amazingly kingdom-focused things. It might be that she would go and just talk to you know, random people in the street and bring them to Christ. It could be that she would take the youth group into you know, the hospital and uh, clear out the, the cancer ward. And it was just, she would talk about it as if it was just a natural everyday thing. So what did you do today? Well, I did this. Like we would say, what did you do? Well, I went to the groceries you know, and played with the kids and so forth. So matter-of-fact, the, the things of the kingdom in her life. 
And he remembers seeing her walk into the room, and he was meeting with other leaders. And when she walked in, he had an open vision. He saw a beam of light coming down onto the young lady. He saw angels looking down on her so intently. He saw Jesus looking at her with a stare that you would not want to be on the wrong side of. But it was a stare of absolute, complete, total devotional love. And in his mind, he saw the words, she has captured the attention of heaven. And his response to this was, that's not normal. <laughs> and God chided him in the only way God can and said, don't you ever say that's not normal because that's my normal. And that is the goal, isn't it? That we are so immersed in God's kingdom culture that we are so naturalized that he is our normal. That's when faith moves mountains. That's when healing happens. Can you imagine our kids, as we pass on the lessons that we've learned, the, the ground that we've fought for, and we pass those on to our kids, and they pass those on to their kids, and so on and so forth. We will have a generation who will not know any different. They will change the world, and they will be humble about it. <laughs> so let me, uh, I'm just going to finish off in prayer. Um, and then we will have a, a short video after the prayer. So Father God, thank you so much for just your patience with us as we continue on this journey with you. Thank you for your love, your care. Thank you for everything that we, that we have in you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your continued, ongoing, always and forever presence in our life, teaching us the things of the Father so that we may more effectively love and serve those around us, no matter what their background, no matter our background. Your heart, Father, is always restoration. Your heart, Father, is always to see the lost come to you. There is celebration in heaven where a single person comes to you. So I can only imagine the party throne when an entire culture is changed from the inside out. We love you, Father, and we know that you love us more than we could possibly know. And I just want to pray a blessing over everyone today who's watching. In Jesus' name, amen.